continue our series this morning in one of the most famous passages of Scripture, one of the most famous stories of Scripture that everybody, even people who've rarely heard of Christianity, is familiar with. The story of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17. It's a long chapter. Follow along with me as I read. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sukkah, which belongs to Judah. And encamp between Sukkah and Azekah and Esphandamin. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah. And they drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side. And Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath. Whose height was six cubits and a span. And he had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield bearer went before him. He stood, and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And Saul... When all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse. He had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the name of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. And David said to the young, David was the youngest. The three elders followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, take your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also, take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper, and he took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage, And ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely He has come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. No taxes for that household. And David said to the men who stood by him, 
What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him towards another, and he spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they were repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth. And he's been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear, and he took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I can't go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the brook, and he put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel's Israel, whom you have defied. And this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the, of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands." When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. And David put his hand in his pouch, took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead. 
and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath, and he killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine, and he brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would send your spirit into our midst to open up our eyes to see that you are the God who defends and the God who delivers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It was during World War II that the scourge of of the Nazis were terrorizing Europe and the world more broadly. And on a winter day in December of 1944, Germans, the Germans made a massive surprise attack on the Allied forces, which has become known as the, as the Battle of the Bulge. In that attack, about 19,000 Americans were killed in the month-long battle. And on December 16, 1944, the Germans attacked with more than 200,000 troops and hundreds of tanks along a 75-mile fr- front through the rugged Ardennes Forest in Belgium and Luxembourg. That area was patrolled by a relatively weak U.S. force. Green troops who had just arrived and battle-weary soldiers who needed a rest. But as the German army started to overcome the U.S. forces and overrun them, they also met pockets of fierce and courageous resistance. One of those was by a young man who was colorblind and from Baltimore, and at the age of 19, and his name was Albert Durago. And Durago had never fired a bazooka in his life. But three days later, later, on December 19, 1944, his superiors were looking for volunteers to go after two German tanks that were coming down the road. Durago and another 19-year-old soldier named Roland Seaman said yes. Years later, Durago admitted, I didn't know the first thing about bazookas. But other soldiers loaded the bazooka for me and told me to fire at the German tank's rear engine. So... Durago headed down a hill under heavy German fire without any cover whatsoever. Durago said, I knew God was with me. Once he spotted what turned out to be four, not two, German tanks, he aimed, pulled the trigger, and surprisingly had a direct hit. When he got back to the camp, the officer asked him to go do it again. So someone reloaded his weapon for him, and he crept down the hill again, looked over the hedge, fired, and got another hit, and again he escaped. In December of 2014, at the 70th anniversary of the Battle of the Bulge, Durago said, believe it or not, I didn't even think about volunteering for the task. It was something that had to be done, and, and we did it. I never considered myself brave. Somebody had to do it, and I was there. 
It's not simply in this biblical text that we look at here today, but also as well today that there is a scourge against the name of God. And there's a scourge against the name of God that, yes, comes from the enemies of God, but more surprisingly, there's a scourge on the name of God that also comes from the people of God. And the truth of this text, let me state it quite simply. It is this. God will defend his name. God will deliver his people. And God is worth your life. There's a scourge on God's name, and it comes from a variety of different sources. The most obvious one in this text is there is a scourge on God's name from enemies who scorn God. Most notably here is this champion of Gath, Goliath, as he is called. And the description of him is rather impressive. There came from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span, that is, he was nine feet six inches tall. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he had a coat, he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat, just the coat of mail, was 5,000 shekels of bronze. That is, 126 pounds. In addition, he had armor, he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders, and the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. That is, 15 to 16 pounds was how much the head of, this, of his spear weighed, and the shield-bearer went before him. And not only... Is he a formidable enemy in this mass of a man that the Israelites were facing? But in addition to seeing this formidable enemy who scorned God, is that they had to daily listen to his hairy-chested boasting as he stood before the people of Israel and declared, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Do you hear his boasting? Do you hear the scorn and contempt that he has for the God of Israel? What Goliath is declaring is he's saying, look, do you look at me? Do you see how tall I am? Do you see how strong I am? Do you see, do you know how big my biceps are to carry a spear with a 16-pound head? Do you see how gigantic I am before you? What you need to know is that no one can stop me. No one can thwart me. Your God cannot help you. Moreover, there is no God that can thwart me. And there is Goliath and the Philistine are a scourge on God's name from an enemy who scorns God himself. But the scourge on God's name continue because not only is it against God, but also against God's deliverer that there is a scourge on God's name. Is that when God's deliverer, David, steps forward, here is Goliath's impression of him. He says, he looked at him and saw David, and he disdained him. For he was but a youth, ruddy, 
and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods and said to David, Come to me and I will give you your flesh to the birds of the air and I will give your flesh to the beasts of the, ear, to the, beasts of the field. What he is declaring, he says, Listen, your deliverer, the one through whom your God is supposedly going to work, is too weak, too puny, too young, too good-looking. I am going to pulverize this pretty boy and put his head through the meat grinder. And the scourge of God's name came from enemies who scorned God and also scorned God's deliverer, but probably more shocking and maybe even more embarrassingly. In this passage, there's a scourge on God's name in the same way from God's people who, yes, also scorn God. Notice the people's reaction to Goliath. We see it first in verse 11. When Saul, so when Saul, their king, and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And then when he came out and stood on his line morning and evening for 40 days, here's what the people of Israel did. They were terrified. They fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. The people were terrified. He was too big, too tall. His missiles were too large. He had too big of weapons. The dude was too ugly. And they were terrified of him. But do you know what they're saying in their fear? They're saying, you know what? Goliath is right. He is too big. He is too formidable of enemy. He is right. Even God, even our God can't help us. It was a scorn against God's name from God's people. And we see that further if we remember why they were in this situation in the first place. It happens because in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people of God rejected God himself as their king over him. And they scorned God to be their leader. And so the Lord says to Samuel, who was the prophet, as the people were asking for a king, he says, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. It was a scorn against God from God's people. And Samuel tries to convince them not to go this route, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Well, where is this king for whom they scorned God because Saul was a better option? Where was this king, King Saul, who was the one who looked great, who was going to bring blessing, who was going to protect the nation, who was going to lead them and go out before them and fight their battles? Where was this pseudo-savior that they were trusting in? The text tells us that Saul was dismayed and greatly afraid. And the most that Saul does to help in this passage is he says to the people of Israel, to the people of God, he says, listen, if anyone will go out and lead before us, I'll give you my daughter, and I'll make you rich, and you can become nobility. That's what I'll do for you. Why? Because he scorned God. 
And it wasn't only a scorn of God that the people, from the people who scorned God, but yes, just like Israel's enemy, there's a scourge in God's name from God's people who also scorned God's deliverer. We see it first with David's eldest brother, Eliab. Eliab heard, when he heard, um, now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? With whom have you left those few sheep, not the large flocks, but you who tend the little sheep on the little hill? Whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down, for you have come down to see the battle. This is from Eliab. Eliab, who we saw last week, was the one who witnessed the Lord's anointing who witnessed the outpouring of oil by Samuel on David, that David was the one who, was going to be the, who is the Lord's anointed, the one who would be the people's deliverer. Do you hear his scorn for God's deliverer? Who are you? You're too little. You're too weak. You're insignificant. How are the sheep out in the fields, baby boy? Why didn't you leave the big problem to the big people who are fighting the big battles? Why didn't you go back on the hillside, little boy? Do you hear the scorn? The scorn from God's people for God's deliverer. And it wasn't just Eliab, it was also Saul, the king, who was to be leading them not only as a nation, but leading them in faith. When David comes before Saul, Saul says to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. And then when David kind of convinced him, and Saul really didn't have any other options, Saul clothed David with his armor. He says, listen, you're too ill-equipped. You're too little, you're too young, you're too ill-equipped. He clothed him with a helmet of bronze in his head, with a cloak of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And David says, I can't use these. I haven't tried these things out. I can't do this. But do you hear the scorn for God's deliverer from Saul of the people of God? You're too young. You're too weak. You're too unequipped. And it was a scourge on God's name as God's people not only scorned God, but also scorned the one that God provided, his deliverer. And all four of these different aspects, scourge on God's name from the enemies of God and from the people of God, all four of these are simply cannon fodder for another application of the principle that we saw last week in chapter 16, verse 17, that the Lord sees not as man sees, that man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart that God sees not as man sees. Man is focused on the externals, and this applies both to our our finest fancies and to our most formidable enemies. A scourge on God's name from enemies who scorn God and scorn God's deliverer. Is it really any different today? Enemies who both scorn God, enemies of God who scorn God and scorn his deliverer. People in the halls of academia who declare that the Christian faith, that Jesus, the God of the Bible, is too weak, too puny, too insignificant, too uneducated, too primitive. Or the latest godless power, the latest Goliath of the day, whether that is ISIS right now or the communism of some decades ago, where arrogant leaders declare, no one can stop me, your God cannot help you, moreover, no God can thwart me, 
Is there not a scourge on God's name from enemies who scorn both God and scorn Jesus Christ, God's provided deliverer? Then again, is it not any different today for the scourge on God's name that comes from God's people who also scorn God? People of the people of God who listen to the latest arrogant ignoramus who despises and discredits the Christian faith. And Christians, their response to this is to be in fear and to be dismayed and to say, you know what, they're right. Who's going to rescue us? I don't know. Who's going to counter this? I don't know. Who's going to be adequate? I don't know. What are we going to do? I don't know. Let us just cower here in fear. It's a scourge on God's name from the people of God. Not only as a scorn for God, but also for his deliverer. How does this get expressed? A little bit more subtly in our lives, it happens when Christians, the people of God, compartmentalize and privatize the Christian faith and say what? You know what? My Christian faith, the things that I believe, yeah, everyone else is correct. The faith and the principles that God gives to me in his word and how we respond to his grace, you're right, everyone else is correct. Those things, God is the God and what he teaches me, God himself, that is inadequate The Christian piece of my life is fine, but it just needs to stay in there because it is inadequate to handle my relationships. It's inadequate to handle my finances. It's inadequate to handle the purpose for my life. It's inadequate to handle the conflicts in my life. I need to believe what everyone else is saying because God's deliverer is inadequate for the things that God has put before me. And it's a scourge on God's name who comes from God's people. And embarrassingly, the scourge in God's name comes from both outside and inside of the Christian faith. But the truth of this passage is regardless of the enemy or the embarrassment of God's people, God will defend his name and God will deliver his people. We see this expressed three times in each of David's speeches. It begins when David first comes up to the battle lines and he is dumbfounded that nothing has happened. And David declares, he says, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach, that is the scourge on God's name, and takes away the reproach from Israel for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. David's looking at this and he's dumbfounded. Why has someone not eradicated this scourge on the name of God? Has the king not promised a reward? Why hasn't anyone stepped forward? And then he goes a step further and he's like, and plus the fact, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? How do we understand that? You know, when I was a kid, you know, we used to tell, like, your mama's so ugly jokes, right? I mean, like, if we were, like, really fighting each other, you wanted to go low, low, bro, we, low blow, we would go into, like, your mama's so ugly and go into this, you know, rant of your mama's so ugly jokes. In Israel, they didn't do that. They did your daddy's so uncircumcised jokes. And they just let each other have it going back and forth, right? But what's the meaning of that? Well, circumcision being a sign of God's covenant promises. And what it meant is an uncircumcised Philistine when David is declaring that he's saying, listen, this uncircumcised Philistine 
is one who does not know God, one who does not fear God, one who does not love God, one who has not been the object of God's affection, one who has not received God's provision, one who has not experienced God's deliverance, and one who is not trusting in God's promises. Who is this arrogant, ignoramus, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the living God? Do we not serve a God who is not made of wood or stone, but we serve and worship the living God? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Then David continues. And he reiterates the point when he's coming up before Saul and Saul's questioning him. And giving this scourge on God's name from God's people. And so David comes before Saul and he explains to Saul what sheep have to do with Philistines. He says, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and he took a lamb from the flock, I went after him. Notice how times David says he killed this thing, okay? I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and I struck him and I killed him. And your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. He has consigned himself to the heap of carcasses with lions and bears, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, most significantly, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. What David is declaring to Saul, listen, I know you look at me. I know you think I'm an experienced, but I'm not an experienced. The only issue here is I'm used to killing ferocious animals, not arrogant giants. And God will deliver me. The reason why I will be successful is not because of my ninja reflexes, my luck, or my skill. It will not come by having the right weapons or better armor. Success comes from God alone, and it is not me and my strength. And David knows that David will be delivered, not because he has true grit, but because he knows the true God. And so he moves forward. Saul doesn't know what else to do. He lets him go. So he moves forward. And David comes out to approach the Philistine, and he expands these same truths again. That God, yes, will defend his name, and that God will deliver his people. Then David said to the Philistine, after the Philistine carried on about killing him and turning him into dog food, he says, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistine this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. Why? That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. God will defend his name. God will deliver his people. Now, we see here that David is able to talk as much smack as as, as the big guy can. I mean, he can go on and on about carcasses and carry on and corpses as well as the giant can, right? 
But the kicker here is what we see in verse 46 and 47. David has two concerns. He has a concern for the reputation and the name of God outside of Israel. And he has a concern for the reputation and the name of God inside of Israel. Both, in both contexts, in both situations, there has been a scourge on those names. By the enemies of God and by the people of God. And David knows that God will defend his name and God will deliver his people both from their enemies and also from themselves. And so David declares, I'm going to do this. Why? That the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, that all the earth will know. That there is a God, a real God, who looks not on the external, who looks not on the height and might of this formidable enemy. That there is a real God who is the God of hosts, the God who Goliath mocked, and God is about to show his powerlessness, his impotence, not only of Goliath, but also of the gods that Goliath serves and the gods that Goliath curses by. That the earth would know, that the nations would know, the name of God, that he is great, to be feared, and that he is to be worshipped. But David's second concern is for the truth to set in among the people of God, that all of this assembly, that all this assembly of the people of God gathered together here, who have been a scourge on the name of God, that they would know, that the people of God would know, that the Lord saves, not with sword or spear, not with the strength of man, not through human power, human courage, human bravery, or human strength, but through the power of God Almighty, most often working through the weakness of his servants, of his servants. Yes, God will defend his name, and yes, God will deliver his people, and yes, God is worth your life. What do you do with this tension? Not only in the text, but today, is that yes, there's still a scourge on the name of God. Today, there's a scourge on the name of God, yes, by the enemies of God who scorn God, who scorn God's deliverer. Yes, today, there's a scourge on the name of God from God's people who scorn God and scorn God's deliverer. What do you do with that? For David, when he saw it and he saw the situation, he walks up and he's like, for real? Really? This is unfathomable. Yeah, I'll go go fight him. I mean, no one has taken this guy on yet. I mean, something had to be done. Somebody had to do it. And David was there and did it. You see, for David, there was one reason and one reason alone that he stepped forward. Because this enemy of God had mocked the ranks of the living God. There was a scourge on God's name, and David wanted the earth to know the God of Israel, and he wanted the people of God to know that God saves not through human power, not through human might, and that the religion and the God of Israel is not a God of stone, and he is not some myth in some people's mind, but rather he is the living God who defends his name and delivers his people. So here was David's response, verse 40. He took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the brook, and he put them in his shepherd's house. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine arose and came and drew near to David. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag, and he took out a stone, and he slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. 
and the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it, just like he said he was going to do. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. There is a living God who will defend his name and who will deliver his people. And to be perfectly clear, as this is one of the most famous stories in the Bible, to be perfectly clear, there is a far greater purpose and application of this text than the self-centered idea of how do I get God to help me fight my battles. There is a far greater purpose and application of this text. You see, God is inviting you into something far greater. He is inviting you to make the name of the living God known to the ends of the earth. And for some of you, yes, that means going to the ends of the earth. And we hope and pray that there will be more people in this church that God will raise up to go and make God's name known to the ends of the earth. But for others of you, it means not going, but it means staying. And it means staying and realizing that God has put you where he has put you. He has put you where he has put you at this time and this place for the purpose, a specific purpose that God has given to you to make his name known and to make his name great. And he's inviting you from the cause of living for yourself, of living for your security, from living for the advancement of your career, your own safety, living for the fruitfulness of your own progeny. And he's inviting you to live for the living God and he is worth your life. Today is a miraculous day, stated Dr. Kent Brantley on his release from Emory Hospital, the doctor who was the first American to contract Ebola as he decided to stay in Liberia and fight the disease. And this is what he stated on that day as he walked out of the hospital. He said, I am thrilled to be alive to be well and to be reunited with my family. As a medical missionary, I never imagined myself in this position. When my family and I moved to Liberia last October to begin a two-year term working with Samaritans First, Ebola was not on the radar. We moved to Liberia because God called us to serve the people of Liberia. In March, when we got word that Ebola was in Guinea and had spread to Liberia, we began preparing for the worst. We didn't receive our first Ebola patient until June, but when she arrived, we were ready. During the course of June and July, the number of Ebola patients increased steadily. And our amazing crew at Elwa Hospital took care of each patient with great care and compassion. We also took every precaution to protect ourselves from this dreaded disease by following MSF and MSF and World Health Organization guidelines for safety. After taking my wife, Amber, and our children to the airport to return to the States on Monday, July 20th, I poured myself into my work, and even more than before, I poured myself into it, transferring patients to our new, bigger isolation unit, training and orienting new staff, 
and working with our human resources officer, officer to fill up our staffing needs. Three days later, on Wednesday, July 23rd, I woke up feeling under the weather, and then my life took an unexpected turn as I was diagnosed with Ebola virus disease. As I lay in my bed in Liberia for the following nine days, getting sicker and weaker each day, I prayed that God would help me to be faithful even in my illness, and I prayed that in my life or in my death that God would be glorified. Shortly after, he gave these public remarks. Ann Coulter, who's never one to pass up the chance to drum up controversy, scorned the first American Ebola patient to be brought back to the country for treatment, this Dr. Kent Brantley. And she scorned him and charged him with being narcissistic for wanting to help people in that region. And she wrote that Christians have no choice but to go on mission trips to disease-ridden cesspools because they're tired of fighting a culture war, war here in the United States. She then went on, somewhat appropriately, to question why God's people aren't serving God in America. Dr. Brantley continues his remarks. I did not know then, but I have learned since that there were thousands, maybe even millions of people around the world praying for me throughout that week and even still today. And I have heard story after story of how this situation has impacted the lives of individuals around the globe, both among my friends and my family, and also among complete strangers. I cannot thank you enough for your prayers and for your support, but what I can tell you is that I serve a faithful God who answers prayers. And it is through the care of Samaritan's Purse, an SIM missionary team in Liberia, through the use of an experimental drug and the expertise and resources of the healthcare team at Emory University Hospital, it was through these things that God saved my life. A direct answer to thousands and thousands of prayers. And I am incredibly thankful to all those who were involved in my care from the first day of my illness all the way up to today, the day of my release from Emory. Thank you to my family, my friends, my church family, and to all who lifted me up in prayer, asking for my healing and recovery. Please do not stop praying for the people of Liberia and West Africa and for a quick end to this Ebola epidemic. My dear friend, Nancy Wrightball, on the screen, upon her release from the hospital, wanted me to share her gratitude for all the prayers on her behalf. And she walked out of her isolation room. All she could say was this, to God be the glory. God will defend his name. God will deliver his people. And God is worth your life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pause before you, and we praise you, and Lord, even tremble before you that you are the living God. You are the living God who is not the figment of someone's imagination, nor what someone contrived in their head, but you are the living God, and Lord, we praise you that you will defend your name and you will deliver your people. Lord, we praise you that you and you alone are worth our lives. 
Father, would you sink this truth deep into our hearts? Lord, would you help us to fix our eyes upon you? For you, Lord, are our true deliverer. Lord, you are the one who rescues your people. You are the one who is making your name great to the ends of the earth. And there is no better news for us than that truth. Father, there are some who have gathered here today who tremble at the challenges in their life. Father, there are some who are gathered here today who cannot see past the things that they see. But Father, I praise you that you are the God who sees not as we see, for you are the one who judges the heart, and you are the one who delivers not through the power of man, but through your holy power working most often in our weaknesses. Father, there is a great need in our world. There is a great need in our community for your name to be honored and glorified and your name to be great. Father, would you send your spirit into this place to rush upon us that you would use us to make your name great, maybe here, but to the ends of the earth, through Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, our Lord, and our Deliverer. In his name we pray.